You are listening to the Maranatha Teachings Podcast, a ministry of Maranatha Church. Maranatha Church is a house church in coastal Virginia with members that span over four generations. Our Bible time together is both instructional and conversational. I'm the pastor and teacher, Nicholas Larum. Welcome to the Dialogue. This is the proofs of Pentecost, and we're going through Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the second, but we did the house last time uh, about where the event of Pentecost more than likely took place. And there was strong evidence for it being in the temple courts in the house of God. And so this is uh, part two, wind, fire, and tongues, which are the proofs of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, the extraordinary signs of the day's arrival... You had the sound like a mighty rushing wind. You had tongues of fire distributing over them. And then you had the speaking in other tongues. Now, I'm used to teaching, and I think we're used to learning segregated pieces of Scripture. You know, we're going to do this subject matter, and then we're going to do this subject matter. A lot of this derives from word studies. You know, we're going to study this word, and then mm-hmm. what does this word mean? Put that in the mouth. And, and so we get we get this stuff. But what I what I want you to become more and more sensitive to is the grand themes of Scripture, how God consistently and repetitively tells the same story over and over and over again in His relationship with His people. The way I've been used to looking at Genesis most of my life is from a, from a creationist perspective and being able to milk as much literal understanding out of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as possible. So that's how I've viewed it. But as you recall, when we, when we looked at Genesis like months ago, and particularly that Genesis 1 through 3, the, the motif of God building a temple, a temple, the habitation, his habitation being on Eden. Remember that we saw in scripture Eden was on a mountain and how most of us thought of Eden as this, you know, um, tamed jungle plain kind of a thing. And yet you had the mountain of God motif. And, and so what the Bible describes and, and what most of us have envisioned through our Bible story books and and the teachings that we've had are, are two different things. And so there's this temple building motif in, in the entire creation from Genesis. So here we are, millennia later. And the closest disciples of the Lord Jesus are gathered together in one place, more than likely by description and incidences that happen in Acts chapter 2. They're in the temple. In Jerusalem, you know, this temple that was built upon a pattern, okay? The same pattern that God, you know, heavens, earth, the sea, all this kind of stuff. They're in the temple of God. The day of Pentecost shows up and the signs attendant are 
wind, fire, and speaking. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So, viewed from a, and I have books on the shelf, you know, just, just viewed from a literal, materialistic, scientific viewpoint, you, you have to come up with a model that has the cosmos as a watery morass that God hovers over and then lights up and begins to, and, and that understanding of ruin and reconstruction, reconstruct whatever had been before to something that is. But what if that's not the story that's being told? What if the story being told is that there is evil in the world that's contrary to God's purposes and that God's intention is to order chaos to provide a home for his people that he can fellowship with. And so in his, his beginning move in conquering chaos, the waters, we looked at the waters motif and, and Leviathan as the great water beast that's representative of chaos, that which is against God's purposes, God's kingdom. In his first move over this darkness and this chaos, these waters, is the Spirit of God hovering over it. So, when we're born again, Scripture defines that as a what? It's a new creation, right? We are new creatures in Christ. And, and Paul uses the language of creation in describing the new book, uh, the, the new birth. You know, as the, as the day star arising in our hearts. And, and I mean, this language is used, that motif is used to describe the redemption of God's people as when God called light out of darkness and created the earth. Well, what was he doing? What was being described in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the earth? The description is that of building a habitation for God, of building a temple. What are you? Temple. The temple of God. And so, right at the start of the story, the Spirit of God moves across the waters, God speaks, and there's light. A mighty rushing wind filled all the house where they were sitting. The Spirit, the Ruch, the wind of God, hovered on the waters. They began to speak. Now, this is out of order from what's in, Gen in, in Acts 2, but, you, you know, these things are concurrent. That's the problem with writing. You can't have everything happen at once, right? <laughs> phrase follows phrase. But the apostles began to speak as the Spirit gave utterance. Well, in the beginning there, God spoke. Let there be light. And tongues of fire appeared to each of them, <laughs> and there was light. You think God's being consistent in his motives in storytelling? And so here we are, all the way at the birth of the church. And once again, we're coming back to God making a habitation to dwell with His people. Because God is love. And relationship is what He's all about. So, this wind, and I'm not going to park too much on the sound of wind, but when the Divine Presence shows up, there's... There are many instances of wind. 
But fire in and of itself is a motif of the divine presence of God showing up. It starts early in Scripture, and it just keeps going. But I'm going to concentrate, well, in Exodus. Exodus 3. Moses out there with the sheep, looks up on the mountain, and he sees the sight that there's a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so then Moses goes up and says, Wow, i got to go check this out. Why is that bush not, not... So we call it the burning bush, but... I think that's just King James really wanting to alliterate, make it very poetically sounding, because the bush really didn't burn, did it? It wasn't consumed. It's a flaming, it's a flaming bush that didn't burn. And you remember, it says, take your shoes off or where you're standing is holy ground. The divine presence showed up. Now, the divine presence showing up in fire and commissioning a prophetic voice is a deep motif in Scripture. You can follow this through. And you know, Isaiah, and the day King Uzziah died, I saw the, the Lord high and lifted up. And what he sees are seraphim, fiery uh, throne guardians in the throne of God, and the throne room of God is filled with smoke. Uh, Ezekiel, he's by the Kabar River, and the glory of God appears, and it's, it's, the, it's the cherubim. The cherubim and the wheels like fire. Now... <laughs> When, when you begin looking at the Scripture in its cultural context and what it's describing, like we could read descriptions and we think one thing. Like I've always thought, you know, the living, the living creatures and the wheels upon wheels and they don't have to turn. I've always envisioned a gyroscope. Oh, me too. And, and so I've always seen these, as described, these living creatures in, in a gyroscope with eyeballs, like human eyeballs everywhere, looking at everything, how I'd envisioned it. But the description is of the four points of the four cardinal points of the zodiac. We're talking about, because from the ancient Near Eastern mind, the heavens is where the fiery beings live. And those constellations are, are divine entities. And so, you know, we know of Taurus and Leo. And I won't go through the rest of them, but those, those four cardinal points... And the eyes are the glowing things, the flaming things, the stars that are all behind them that don't move, you know. So, in other words, we just don't think big enough. We think of this vision as a heavenly vision, and maybe we're thinking about a localized tornado and these fantastical-looking figures, when the description is astronomical. It's, I mean, it's big, right? But, again, Ezekiel being commissioned and, and God showing up like fire. Is, is what occurs. So here, Exodus 3, Moses is called out, and he's being called out in, in the flaming presence of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears in the bush, and we all we went through all that. The angel of the Lord who is Yahweh, but not Yahweh. And Exodus 13, uh, 21 through 22, and 14, 24, when the children of Israel depart from Egypt, they're being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's not two different pillars. It's, it's just, you know... Lightning at night and lightning during the day look different, right? <laughs> and so this pillar of fire by night, this is the presence of God. Surely my presence shall go with you, you know, and, and the pillar of cloud leads them out. And then Exodus nineteen eighteen and and Exodus twenty four seventeen, this is the appearance of fire on Mount Sinai. Now where does where does God have Moses take them? Back to the mountain of God where he encountered them. So where, where the flaming bush was, 
was on the mountain of God. And that's, that's where Moses takes them back, where God appears on this mountain. Again, God's presence on a mountain communicates to these people, should communicate to us, because we didn't come to Mount Sinai, but we came to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So even God's habitation in the spirit realm, in the heavenlies, is communicated to us as being on a mountaintop, as a mountaintop thing. Look at uh, Ezekiel 19, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. I think the King James uh, is, you know, um, Mount Sinai was all in a smoke. <laughs> Sounds like the mountain's taking a break or something. But, you know, it's, it's so he descends wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So God shows up in fire and smoke, and it's like, ah, you know. The scripture calls him the meekest man on earth, but I think Moses was brave. Okay? Curious and brave. Oh, look, there's a fire on this bush, but the bush isn't going away. Let me go check that out. <laughs> God knew that he you know? would. Right. And then he's so obstinate that he argues God to anger. Right? <laughs> no, I can't do it. Now they won't believe me. What's your name? I stutter. You know, fine. I'll send your brother with you. Okay, you happy? <laughs> but you're going. So here we go in, in Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Now, if that's all it said, it'd be like, okay, you know. We see Moses. He wanders off into a fog, and they're all like, yeah, well, maybe he comes back next day. We don't know. You got any gold? Yeah, got it, girl. <laughs> How do you go? <laughs> Moses, so it's a real simple phrase. Moses goes up in the mountain, you know, the clouds on the mountain. Verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. So here the glory of God's on six days, right? And on the seventh day, he calls to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Moses! Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, they all were trembling. They're like... You know, we're still there. You imagine you go into your tent, you wake up, you look up, you're like, he's still there. You know, you go into your tent, you wake up, he's still there. Where have they been living? They've been living in Goshen. They've been living down there in the, you know, Nile Delta and all in the flatlands. They're at the foot of this mountain and he's still there. <laughs> Day seven. Uh, Moses, I need to have a chat, right? 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Now, you think that perhaps maybe the experience of seeing a bush on fire and not being consumed might have given him a little bit of respite, right? Like, okay, it might be okay to come up in here. It's like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses went up on the, was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That takes a little bit of courage. A little bit of trust. Deuteronomy 4.36. Moses talking to the children of Israel, reminding them of what had occurred there at Sinai. He says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. This is what happened on Sinai. Now, these descriptions are of the glory of the Lord. And there are various portions of it described in various ways. 
Exodus 40, verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. And if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out. Verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire, on, fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the establishment of the tabernacle, the glory of God falls as the cloud and pillar of fire. Fire is present. God is taking up habitation in his tabernacle to dwell with his people. So 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because, the, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here in the establishment of the temple, God comes down in glory and fills the temple. Okay? Now Ezekiel is captive in Babylon. Babylon is a kingdom that is in the same geographic real estate as Babel. Babel, as you recall, was the third great rebellion of mankind. You had the first rebellion when Adam transgressed the covenant and then Genesis 6, you have the whole Watcher episode and, and the sons of God cohabiting with women and all the evil that God engendered in that situation. And then Genesis 11, you have the Babel incident where mankind gathers together in one place to make a name for themselves, to establish themselves as the authority in heaven, in essence. And God says, hey, let me look down see what you're doing. And he confuses all the languages. So... Nimrod, Bat, Babel, and then in terms of bad guys in Scripture, they're all defined by their activities toward the people of God. So you have Egypt. Egypt comes out as the first big bad guy, right? Because the children of Israel are, are bound captive. Then the northern tribes, they apostate, and God continues through his prophets to say, hey, look, you know, get straight or I'll straighten you out. And they don't, so the Assyrians come in. The Assyrians come in, take the northern tribes out. Then you have this whole thing, the lost tribes of Israel. They never come back to the land in mass, identifiably. So the Assyrian becomes the bad guy. Oh, we're used to calling the bad guy the beast or the Antichrist, but, you know, in essence, there you go. Okay? You have the Egyptian, you have the Assyrian, but then the one that just takes over and, and carries all the way to the end of the Bible is Babylon. Because Babylon comes in and takes out the kingdom of Judah. And what does Babylon do? Destroys the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple of God, takes God's people captive. But he begins taking them captive before, you know, the, the final um, governor or king uh, decides to try to cut a deal. So historically what happens is they're, they're underneath Babylon. They're like, oh, submitted. Okay, we're going to do this thing. You've got Jeremiah who's prophesying to them saying, hey, look, don't fight these guys. This is God's will. He's highly unpopular. You know, he's, he's like a fifth column inside of Israel. He's thrown into prison because he's saying, hey, look, you, you're better off submitting to Babylon than trying to fight him. And finally, 
you know, Babylon makes them submit, and the, the king is like, okay, I'll be good. But then he tries to make a backdoor deal with Egypt. And so Babylon comes in and says, you know, no show, no go. Kills all his kids, takes his eyes out, and then destroys Jerusalem. Takes the temple out. This is the time period. So in the time period before that temple is taken down, and Israel's on this cusp of making this great mistake, Ezekiel is prophesying in captivity in Babylon. Make sense? Follow me so far? So, Ezekiel chapter 1. In verse 1, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. So where is he seeing this vision? He's by the Kabar, but where is the vision happening? In heaven. In heaven. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions. Remember I said to you these signs are astronomical? So he's not seeing these, these cherubim, in essence, necessarily cutting across the river. The heavens are open, and he's seeing visions of God. And I looked, and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it. Sound familiar? And fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of the four living creatures, and this was their appearance. And then so he describes the creatures, but... What he's seeing is the cloud. But now he's giving you details of what's inside the cloud. The cherubim are throne guardians of the throne of God. Divine beings who guard the throne of God. And he, he goes on to describe the living creatures and all that's going on. You get toward the end of the chapter. And in verse 26 he says, Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So here's the commissioning of Ezekiel. What does he see? The glory of God appear. What's the motif? Fire. God's appearing in fire. He's appearing as a fiery man. So if you follow Ezekiel all the way through, you have, you have this glory of God begins to move. You know, he's... He takes him in visions to Jerusalem. He's on the house. Then he's off the house. Then he just departs Jerusalem. Like, I'm leaving. The glory of God's leaving Jerusalem. But down toward the, uh, toward the end of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 43, and then he led me, verse 1, and then he led me to the gate, to the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. Just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, we're kind of used to trying to interpret these last chapters of Ezekiel 
in an end time scenario. You know, this is why the east side of Jerusalem is boarded up because, you know, Jesus has to walk through that east side and, and the Muslims knew this and so they boarded up a wall that wasn't even there when he talked about it. Yeah, yeah. So this is how we're used to seeing it. But there are many, many, many reasons why a literal interpretation of the temple that Ezekiel describes doesn't fit. The least of which is not the fact that he begins to describe sacrifices and we have no need of them. We have no need of sacrifices after the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And so you have this entrance of the glory of the Lord back into Jerusalem to fill his temple. And it's described in the same form. Note what he says in, in chapter 43. He says that his appearance was the same as when he came to destroy the city and when he saw him at the Kabar River. And we saw that that description is pretty consistent with when God shows up to do good things too. Because God's consistent. His character's consistent. So that's a side note way of saying that this fire motif is not only a motif of God's presence, but also of divine judgment. So an area that I'm not going into tonight, or, uh, you know, I don't know when, if, if ever, but these, these reflections in the Old Testament of the Spirit showing up and God showing up in fire are tied very closely together with motifs of judgment on the nations, with motifs of God showing with end times imagery is my point. And so here, Jesus has promised that he's going to build his church, that here he is, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And this he spoke of his body, of his, you're the church, the body of Christ. And here he tells his disciples to reside, to wait. They're in the temple courts. The day of Pentecost fully arrives, and the glory of God appears as a rushing mighty wind and fire and fills them. And it's the birth of the church. And then you have all these, you know, all these motifs then flow out through Ezekiel. You get to verse 48 and the river that flows, the river of life that's flowing from the threshold of the temple. Remember we talked about Jesus and, and talking to the woman at the well that those who drink this water, as the scripture says, from, from his belly will flow rivers of living water. The water's coming from Jesus. The water's coming from the habitation of God. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in our Lord. And our Lord dwells in us. These are all temple descriptions. Described in a way that's consistent from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation. Is God showing up to fill His temple. This is why I spent the time I did... To, to think about and look at, okay, where did it happen? In some, in some enclosed upper room out of sight of everybody? Or did it happen in the temple courts to make a theological statement? God's glory has appeared again, and it's filled His people. That's this glory of the Lord motif. Once again, Deuteronomy 4.36, Out of heaven He let you hear His voice, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost fully arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, 
and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And as we find later in Acts chapter 2, they were speaking the wonderful works of God. He let you hear His voice and He spoke to you out of the fire. This is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. The, the, the glory of God appears, the presence of God indicated by fire, and He speaks, but He speaks through His instruments. He speaks to the disciples present in tongues that they don't know, but the people present do. I want to read to you out of the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary, this long-standing commentary on Scripture. On this verse 3, cloven tongues like as a fire, etc. The disparted tongues, that is, tongue-shaped, flame-like appearances <coughs> rising from a common center or root and resting upon each of that large company. That's what the Scripture describes, the Greek describes out of this and if you'll note, we get, a, we get a little hint of this because it says divided tongues. What is that? Plural, right? Yeah. Appeared to them and, and rested in the King James's and it, and it sat on each of them, singular. Wait a minute. We got a singular and we got a plural. So the picture, if you've seen these, these depictions of Pentecost where you have the 120 and there's a little, you know, lighter fluid flame on top of each one's head. And that's generally how it's depicted from a traditional point of view, is this simple little flame that appears on each head. But what's being described is a common source of fire that's split out to each of them. Well, a common source of fire splitting out sounds like, oh, that sounds like the appearance of the glory of God. Right? Fire came from heaven. The fire, right? And so, once again, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. Cloven tongues, like as a fire, etc. The disparted tongues, the, the dispersed, distributed tongues of fire. That is, tongue-shaped, flame-like appearances rising from a common center or root and resting upon each of that large company. Beautiful, visible symbol of the burning energy of the Spirit now descending on all his in all his plenitude upon the church and about to pour itself through every tongue and over every tribe of men under heaven. This is God, through Jesus, pouring out the Holy Spirit, addressing the final rebellion. Mankind building the Tower of Babel to place themselves in heaven. This is God coming down from heaven, placing himself in mankind, to speak to all the nations of the earth, the nations he disinherited at Babel, the tongues he confused at Babel, those he disinherited and sent off and set under guardian principalities, he now is reclaiming through his appearance in his temple. He's building the people of God. He appears in fire. Now, if you think about, and we're not going to go into it tonight, but just think about the scene. When this was noised abroad and the multitude came together and they say, how is it that each of us hears, you know, and the list of nations, them speaking, our, none of the witnesses of this event were freaking out about, did you see that column of fire? That testimony's not there. That, you read about God showing up in, in, in Sinai, you read, you know, those, those people are like, the testimony is, Woo, we, we were quaking in fear, God showed up in fire, you know. 
Maybe they didn't see the fire. Aha! Maybe they didn't see the fire. So again, look at the text. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. Who's the them? They were all together in one place. So the appearance of God's glory and fire was a vision given to the original recipients. And like prophets of old who were initiated into their office by an appearance of the divine presence and fire, the apostles who were foundationals to the church of Jesus Christ, their names are inscribed on New Jerusalem, which by the way you are, is they're being specially commissioned. Tongues coming down like fire, and they begin to speak in other tongues. Isn't that that neat? So that's the uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. This is out of the Faith Life Study Bible, and you can get this for free online. (laughs) It's the Logos Bible software, and you can get your Faith Life Study Bible for free. And this this is out of the article written, uh, the same title I used for this sharing, which is Fire is a Motif of the Divine Presence. It's an article written for the dictionary by Michael S. Heiser. This is his comment on how this fire plays out in Acts chapter 2. The stormy aura of a violent rushing wind accompanied by flaming tongues indicates that the gathered disciples are now in the divine presence. The throne room of God has come to them. The fire is associated with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. As with other prophetic figures, the apostles are commissioned in the divine presence by the divine presence. And that is the proofs of Pentecost. So, I want to finish up with Psalm 50. Psalm 50 and verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Where are they sitting? They're in Jerusalem. Where's Zion? In Jerusalem. Zion, Mount Zion is the motif of the heavenly dwelling of God that He wants to have on earth. Verse 3, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. That's the wind. Our God doesn't keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire and a mighty wind. I, I just think these apostles knew the Bible. I, I, just, think, I just think that Jesus instructed them and the scriptures. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he might judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, I'm fairly certain that the psalmist who penned this didn't have in his mind 12 future Galileans sitting in a temple built by an Idumean, Herod, in Jerusalem somewhere in you know the start of the ADs, okay? But the motifs are consistent and telling. Psalm 50. We have we have God shining forth, we have the fire, we have the wind. And as I said, fire is not only him showing up in presence, but also in judgment and also in empowerment, right? Verse 5: Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am, your, I am God, your God. Hear, my people, and I will speak. At the end of this, Peter stands up. 
And he says, Jesus, the one you crucified, he is resurrected. I will testify, I am your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. This is the commencement of the actual new, new birth process. The greatest <laughs> deliverance known to mankind after God resurrected Jesus from the grave, never to die again. Call on me on the day and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Remember when Paul wrote the Corinthian church and he says, you know, basically he's saying, look, I'd rather speak five intelligible words, you know, sentences, whatever, than 10,000 in a tongue. But he says, you know, if you just speak in tongues and no one interprets, well, verily you give thanks what? Well. Well. You give, you're giving, you're praying, you're giving thanks well. But the other is not edified. So even though that, share, that sharing's in a negative context, tongue talking, spiritual prayer language, part of tongue talking is giving a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And praise to Him, Right? He goes on to say, but to, the, but to the wicked, God says, what right, you, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Tongues is like the opposite of that verse. <laughs> and speaking in tongues, you're, you're not giving your tongue over to deceit or evil. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Isn't that good? Well, that's Acts 1. Acts 2, 1 through 4. Awesome. Amen. 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 Amen.